we can't be railing at people who are who are struggling with trying to understand what for them is a hard issue but we also can't allow these kids and parents to be dehumanized and demonized and so it is um it is the work that allies need to do right now and i want to be a good ally Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Representative Becca Ballant ran for Congress last year as a bridge builder and a peacemaker. But five months into the job, the first-term Vermont Congresswoman is appearing on national news and going viral on social media as she slams anti-LGBTQ attacks as, quote, garbage and slaps down far-right trolls such as Representative Lauren Boebert. Balance willingness to rumble in the culture wars and push back against political opponents has earned her the respect of her Democratic colleagues. This week, House Democrats voted to appoint her to the House Judiciary Committee, one of the most high-profile assignments. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries said that Ballant, quote, will be a strong voice on the Judiciary Committee, and I look forward to working with her to fight back against MAGA extremism and continue putting people over politics. Representative Ballant, who is filling a vacancy left by Rhode Island Representative David Cicilline on the Judiciary Committee, will be the committee's sole openly gay member and the only Democratic representative from the Northeast. She also serves on the House Oversight and Accountability Committee and the House Budget Committee, though she is likely to have to step down from one of those committees when she joins Judiciary. Becca Ballant entered electoral politics after being a middle school teacher in Wyndham County for 14 years. She served eight years in the Vermont State Senate, including two years as Senate President Pro Tem. I spoke with Representative Ballant yesterday in the midst of a standoff by far-right Republican lawmakers that paralyzed the House for nearly a week. Representative Becca Ballant, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. I'm so happy to be here, David. So uh, when we first got on, you said you were uh, you were having a good day. And, you yes. know, from those of us out here in the boonies watching the goings, goings on in Washington, that came as a little bit of a surprise to me. So let's just start there. What's making okay. today a good day? Well, I uh, had caucus first thing this morning. And within caucus, the members of the caucus voted to give me an appointment to the House Judiciary Committee. And so I'm feeling very excited about that. And say a little bit about that. That is certainly one of the most high-profile committees and why you wanted it and why you got it. Yes. So I wanted it because it does so much work on behalf of Americans around civil liberties, oversight of um, the justice and homeland security, legal and regulatory reform, gun violence prevention, um, and also thinking about this moment that we're at right now in terms of, of voting rights and the constant drumbeat of attacks on queer and trans Americans. Um, all those reasons are reasons why I, I wanted to get the appointment. And we had an unusual opening on the committee because Congressman David Cicilline, who's been a real champion on civil rights, but also on antitrust uh, legislation. He decided to step down from Congress and go back into uh, doing work in his home state of Rhode Island. So there was an open seat and there were many people who wanted it. Of course, it's a, a really 
influential and important committee. And, you know, in terms of why I got it, all I can say is I, I'm working really hard and I, I hope that my dedication um, shown through. What's something you hope to advance and champion on the Judiciary Committee? A lot of the same work that David Cicilline did on antitrust work, but also on finally passing uh, the Equality Act, making sure that we truly have protections for all Americans, including queer and trans Americans. And right now, um, the work ahead of us is really going to be, unfortunately, occupied with this battle royale uh, around the, the Trump indictment. And uh, Jim Jordan has been one of his most vociferous defendants uh, without having, you know, he was out on, on the news even before he read the, the documents. And that's going to be constant. They are going to use that committee to, to prop up the president and the former president and his poll numbers. And that's going to be really distasteful work, but really important work that needs to be done. For people who are kind of just listening in the background, um, how do you answer President Trump's complaint that, you know, uh, he's being singled out, he's being targeted? Of course, the Judiciary and Oversight Committees have been, you know, places where talk of the weaponization of government. Um, how do you respond to people wondering what's going on? Is he being singled out in some way that's unfair compared to others, say, President Obama or Hillary Clinton? So the most important piece for me to always convey to constituents is he is an American who faces the same judicial system as everyone else. And so there is a presumption of innocence until they prove their case. But certainly he was um, indicted by a grand jury. This was not a, a fishing expedition that was done by some partisan hacks. This was a grand jury that saw the evidence and decided there were uh, there was enough evidence to charge. Now, the other piece I want people to understand is many people over the years have been indicted for these same charges and have actually been um, held accountable. And because he is a former president does not mean he is above the law. And in terms of the fairness, you've got a situation where um, President Biden and Vice President Pence also were found to have documents in their possession. The difference was once it came to their attention that they had those documents, they turned them over immediately and also invited folks to come in and look for more and make sure there wasn't anything left behind. What we have here is a charging document that shows that President Trump actively evaded requests for the documents. And as I always say, it's if at the very beginning of this process, he had turned over the documents, we would not be in this situation right now of having an indictment of multiple counts. And so his actions matter. And ultimately, uh, the case will will go through um, all the stages that he is entitled to as, as an American. But it's important that people understand that his former 
Attorney General Barr has been out on the news saying, these are serious charges and nobody should be dismissing them out of hand that this is some kind of partisan attack. You began by referencing some of the anti-LGBTQ bills. There are We are at almost 500 anti-LGBTQ bills have been introduced uh, in state legislatures this year, more than 10 times the amount five years ago. 18 states have now passed laws restricting trans children's health care. You had a viral moment last week where you confronted a former Trump administration witness and you asked her, do you actually believe this garbage? What prompted that exchange? A couple things. First, it really doesn't matter what committee hearing or subcommittee hearing I'm in. The members of those committees on the other side of the aisle try to bring in uh, queer and trans kids into the conversation. They have decided that this is a boogeyman that they can use uh, to raise money, turn people out to the polls. And this was a tactical decision that was made by the GOP when they saw that the American public had largely moved on from uh, same-sex marriage. They needed something else something else to rile the base. And uh, there was actually quite a, a good piece done on it by the New York Times um, probably a month and a half ago now about this. This was this is a strategic decision that was made. And for me, it is so cynical and so cruel to decide that the enemy that you're going after are children, and their, their parents who are just trying to do the very best they can do. And so in the case of that hearing, the woman witness was trying to make the case that factors such as environmental factors or social factors that are used to indicate whether you are making smart investments, right? If you are somebody who has a fiduciary responsibility, whether it's for a pension or, or some other fund, they ought to be able to look on all the factors that might impact uh, the return on the investment. And the case that she was making was that these investment strategies are just another way for the left to force kids to change their gender. That was the case that she was making. I gave her an opportunity to clarify, like, is this actually what you are saying? And she said, well, it's not, it's not a belief, it's fact. This is this is what the left is trying to do. And so we've gone off the rails here. And one of the things that I'd love Vermonters and, and other listeners um, to your program to understand is that I understand these issues are hard. They're hard for a lot of people, especially if you don't have a trans member of your family or somebody close to you in your uh, circle of friends or your neighborhood. And and I think a lot of people are struggling with how to talk about these issues and how to really understand the situation that these kids and families are in. And one of the things I try to say to people who are struggling, who don't understand it, to say, start from a place of love and compassion and believe that these parents are doing the very best that they can 
for their kids. If you start from there, you're going to have a much more open heart and mind to understanding their experiences. And these parents have said to me and others uh, within um, the Democratic caucus, we need you to stand up for us as parents and as Americans. We are being demonized, dehumanized. And honestly, we're just trying to do right by our kids. And so I, I'm hoping that when I'm called upon to be fierce and to call people you know, on, the, on their garbage, as I said, in committee, or if I'm called upon to have a very um, heartfelt, deep conversation with constituents or others uh, within my caucus who are still struggling, I want to be both those people because we can't be railing at people who are who are struggling with trying to understand what for them is a hard issue, but we also can't allow these kids and parents to be dehumanized and demonized. And so it is um, it is the work that allies need to do right now. And I want to be a good ally. It seems almost like a contagion has swept across the country in Republican-led states and even in Congress. And the speed of it, you know, yes. when I, has it, I mean, it, has it taken you aback? Did you see this coming? That I did see it coming because there's always a backlash. There is always a backlash when Americans gain uh, rights, when they are accepted in their communities. They're, you know, when I'm speaking about whether you are a member of the LGBTQ community or whether you are a person of color, there is always a backlash. What I didn't anticipate was that there would be so many bystanders who do nothing. That's the part I didn't anticipate. So as I said, they this was a calculated strategic move to try to rile up the base. And there are people on the other side of the aisle here in Congress that will tell you when the cameras aren't rolling, we know that this is not good for the party for us to be doing this. We know that this is, um, you know, even if they themselves don't understand the issue, they they think that this kind of vitriol is uh, is not productive. But when it comes time to vote, David, they all vote straight down the line. That's what's discouraging is they'll tell you, I know this isn't good for America. It's not good for the party. But in the end, on the floor, they'll vote in support of these anti-trans bills. That's what is so disturbing to me. What is it like for you are one of just 11, I believe, out LGBTQ uh, members of Congress, and there are two senators uh, yes. as as well. But so you're a member of this small minority in a body yes. that is advancing anti-gay legislation and is demonizing trans people in hearing after hearing. They're talking about you. Yes. Yes. You know, I... I feel so incredibly fortunate and honored that I get honored to be in those rooms, even though it's hard, even though it, it can be incredibly discouraging and frustrating. And the reason why I still feel so honored to be here is that there's so many people in Vermont who need me to be a voice for them. And 
I have great colleagues. This incoming class, and I don't know if I said this to you last time, this incoming class on the Democratic side is full of really good people who are doing good work in the world. So I feel very supported, even though I'm one of only three you know, out gay women in Congress, I feel like at any given moment when I come out of a hearing and I feel, you know, beat up or beat down or just so discouraged, I have so many people that I can text, reach out to, stop by their offices who I know will go to the mat for me. And that makes a real difference. It really does. You've spoken of meeting, you know, outside of these hearings where there there are no TV lights on, that families, LGBTQ families, yes. particularly families with trans kids, are reaching out to you. What are they asking of you and what do you tell them? Yes, these have been some of the most moving meetings that I have been a part of since um, being sworn into Congress. What they're saying is, you don't know how difficult it is to navigate this as a parent. That it's hard, you know, you're a parent, David. I'm a parent. It's hard enough parenting, right? Parenting will make you doubt everything you thought you knew about the world or yourself, right? It's always hard. You want to be your very best self for your kids all the time. And they say, you know, put on top of that stress of being a parent, being publicly demonized and having your children talked about with such hatred and disdain. And they say it just, it just crushes them. And what they need from us is to be really strong allies that we have to, every single time somebody brings it up, even if it's just as an aside, you know, like a stupid throwaway line in committee, they say, you got to take it on in real time because we are now the scapegoats. We are the ones they're coming after. And one of the most poignant things that a parent said to me was, when our kids say to us, why is our own government attacking us? Why are our own elected officials in this free country, in this democracy, going after us when all we want to do is just lead our lives, live our lives? We're not trying to change anyone else. We just want the space and the grace, you know, to live a full life. And I've been just so moved by their strength. Many of these families are living in so-called red states or red districts, and they're they're needing to decide: Do we leave our hometown? Do you know some of these people? Their families have been there for generations in these states, and they say we're looking for an exit strategy because that's what any parent would do, right? Well, and it's important to point. I mean, the thing that I find so astonishing is that. Republicans long had the mantra of small government, you know, yes. less government, government off our backs, government out of uh, our bedrooms, what have you. This is the most, in my lifetime, the most invasive kind of government yes. intrusion where they're yes. talking about banning health care for trans kids, removing kids, 
calling it child abuse to just yes. parent your trans child. Yes. Um, the aggressiveness of the intrusion really just, I mean, it's terrifying if, if you are the, you know, a trans family. Yes. Or if you're someone who actually believes in a free society and a democracy, right? And so every time I, you know, I read, of course, read the news every morning before I leave to, to walk to the Capitol. And every time I see the words um, Freedom Caucus, right, this extremist coalition within the conference, I get this bile in my throat because they're not about freedom at all. They are not about giving families the freedom to do the very best for their kids. They're not about women's reproductive freedom. They're not about us being a free society where we can read the books that we want and have them available to us. And so they have completely and totally not just co-opted freedom, they have, it's a perversion of freedom and a free society. And I, I really want us as Americans who, who still believe in a democracy and a free society to be much more strong about pushing back about this notion that they are the party of freedom because it's just not the reality on the ground. Or for that matter, parental rights when they are so focused on denying the rights of parents, yes. of children, or of people who simply want to learn a history, a a truthful history of this country. A truthful history, yes. Um, yeah. You know, those parents don't get any rights in those conversations. That's right. Only if you are in, in lockstep with with their beliefs. The other thing about this issue, too, about the, the trans issue that, you know, I really want to be clear to folks, because I've seen recent polls. I know there are a fair number of people within my own party who are struggling to understand these issues. And I, I just, I wanna be really clear that there, there's language used that I think confuses the issue a lot. And so one of them is this notion of gender affirming care. And so a lot of people, when they hear that, they think that what's happening is at a very young age, you know, parents are deciding for their kids, you know, what it is their gender identity is or, or, or forcing the issue or whether it's a, you know, a psychologist or a doctor. When you say gender affirming care at a young age, what you're saying to your child is, I see you, I love you, I support you. That's what we're talking about. Gender affirming care is meeting your child where they're at and telling them, you're on this journey, you're trying to figure stuff out. I love you, I support you, I'm gonna be here for you. And if you start from that premise, how can you imagine that these parents are not trying to do their level best to support their children? Let's talk about what is happening right now in your workplace, Congress. Yes. Um, the Freedom Caucus, um, <laughs> is preventing any business from getting done. Um, That's right. The debt ceiling, and why don't we just uh, go back to the debt ceiling? You at first yes. said you were leaning no, you were yes. against, uh, but then uh, ultimately decided to vote to support. Yes. And before I trip over myself, you support raising the debt ceiling 
Um, and it supported the compromise between Biden and McCarthy. Right. That's right. So explain your change of position. Absolutely. Oh, I'm happy to. And this was, it's really interesting. This was a, this was a tough vote for a lot of us because we never should have been in this situation to begin with that, you know, the debt ceiling was raised uh, three times under President Trump. We pay our bills. That's what it means, right? You pay your bills. And then you talk about how you want the money to be spent in the budget and the appropriations process. So we never should have been there. And they basically were holding the, not just our economy hostage, but the world economy saying, either you agree to, you know, these dramatic cuts to programs that so many Americans uh, need and support, uh, or we're going to crash the economy. So it's a, it's a Hobson's choice. Okay. And so there was no good, um, completely good option for me. And so I was leaning no, because I saw the, the same old hackneyed playbook that they use, which is this farce that somehow you're going to balance the budget by going after SNAP benefits, right? Let's let's take the the most needy people who are getting food supports and do this shell game. Like, don't look over here, the unfunded Trump tax cuts, which cost us, you know, $1.7 trillion. Let's look at how, you know, poor people don't need food supports. And so just on its face, it's so cynical and so cruel that I had a hard time with that. And the more that I looked at some of the deals that were cut around the environment were very worrisome to me, specifically around a pipeline in, in West Virginia. But then something happened on the floor that really alarmed me. So you have to have a procedural vote to bring bill to the floor, right? And you need a, a rule suspension, essentially, because we were fast tracking this before the default deadline, right? And that's the other piece I want people to understand. We'd run out of runway. And so we're on the floor and the Republicans didn't have the votes for the rule suspension. And not by just a little bit, 28 Democrats, needed to flip their votes on the rule suspension to enable the bill to even come to the floor. So the fact that McCarthy didn't even have the votes on the rule suspension was very alarming to me. And I was concerned that they did not have the votes to pass the bill without a lot of our help. And you know, some of my colleagues who they run in the, the same, you know, friends circles that I did, we did a, a debrief afterwards. Um, half of us in this core group of friends, half voted for it, half of us voted against it. And we all agreed that the only way that you could have voted against it was to know it was going to pass anyway, because the alternative for thousands and thousands of Vermonters would have been catastrophic. So it was tough. It's, you know, it's tough. And right now, do you think McCarthy is going to survive? I mean, his his life, he seems to be on life support yes. day to day. Yes, uh, I think he will. I think he has mortgaged his entire speakership. He has made so many side deals that he can't keep track of what he said to whom. But there really is no one else in the conference 
that wants this job, given like they they're watching what the Freedom Caucus is doing, right? So any more quote, I'm using it in quotes, more moderate Republican is not going to want to deal with that headache. And the only other person whose name is being floated right now is Steve Scalise and McCarthy and his allies are furious with Steve Scalise about what happened with, with this latest debacle uh, on the floor. And so I don't see anyone emerging. So they could have the vote to vacate, but they don't have another candidate. And they have said they will not partner with us. And so, I mean, that's the other piece. That's the piece I want folks to understand that because Vermonters I know really care about working across the aisle, finding compromise, working together. And it's something I hear about whenever I come back to Vermont, like is there still an opportunity to do this? Why is McCarthy being punished right now? He is being punished by his extremists for making a compromise. They literally have said in the press, you should not be having to do any kind of partnering with Democrats for anything. That is not healthy government. That is not uh, sustainable. And so that is why he's being punished right now, because he averted a default by partnering with Democrats and they he's paying a price for it politically. Representative Ballant, you, I read an interview with you like the day that you were sworn in, in January. <laughs> and uh, it's it's interesting to go, uh, you know, the this was then and this is now. Yes. At that time, you said that you had a renewed sense of optimism when you thought about uh, defending democracy, which was something you spoke often of on the campaign trail. So that was, uh, I don't know, six months ago. How would you describe your sense of things now when it comes to defending basic rights and democracy? I I still have a strong sense of optimism because of the colleagues that, that I serve with within my caucus. There are a lot of people I get inspiration from. There are so many uh, members that I can turn to that are, are fighting the good fight and doing it for the right reasons. And that helps in those moments when you have the dysfunction and the chaos within the Republican conference on the floor, or when you have, you know, people um, using their positions for one reason and one reason only, and that is to defend the former president and prop up his poll numbers. So that 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 cynicism is is definitely hard to watch. But, you know, I started the day this morning at softball practice. I play on the bicameral, bipartisan women's softball team. And so when I go out on the field, I am playing with Democrats and Republicans from both the House and the Senate. And we are still trying to build those relationships because those are the relationships that will bear fruit on policy later on, because we have some other connection that is outside of the building that those kind of connections still matter here. And I think that's part of the issue for this, uh, you know, for the MAGA Republicans, the extremists, they don't understand that actually how we treat one another 
matters. How you build relationships matters. And watching that who I am as a person and as a politician and who I have been as a leader in Vermont still works here. That you can really build relationships across all kinds of difference if you are somebody who is leading with um, a curiosity and a, a kindness and compassion and bringing the fire when it's needed, but not, not being uh, full of, of anger and hatred. I mean, that I could become such a cynical person, you know, based on everything that I'm hearing about attacks on queer and trans people, but I don't want to become that. I refuse to become that. So, of course, we're not throwing any softballs here. Um, <laughs> you, uh, you have talked, so it, it's great that um, you guys play softball together. Yeah. But you've spoken about finding and the need to find Republican partners to yes. defend basic rights like reproductive rights, voting yes. rights. Have you found any? I have found partners on issues that are less um, culture war issues like mental health. I partnered with um, a Republican a congressman on a mental health bill. I know that there are members within the Republican caucus conference, excuse me, who understand that if they continue to push on stripping Americans of their reproductive rights, that is going to be a losing issue for them. And one of those uh, women who um, I serve with on, on oversight is Nancy Mace. And she has been one of the people who has been outspoken about that. And I think she's going to become more of a player on this issue as we, we head into the next uh, election cycle. The problem is that those conversations usually happen behind closed doors and things filter out to the press about what people said, but there are still so many extremists that are driving the train right now. They still, the extremists still want a national abortion ban. The extremists still want to, you know, hit their punch list of, you know, what they see is the, the work that they finally can get done because of the, of the Supreme Court. And so, there is going to be a reckoning at some point within the GOP. It is not clear to me if it's going to happen in 2024 or whether it's going to happen in 2028, but they're not bringing more people into their movement. I feel like with each month that goes by, they're alienating, you know, alienating more and more Americans. And I, I will continue to make these connections. But bottom line, if they're going to be apologists for the extremists, then they're no better than being the extremists. That's the piece that the reasonable people, we and I call them the timid 20, you know, because it's about you know, 20 sort of moderate, quote unquote, moderate Republicans. If in the end they vote with the extremists, then how are they any different? You know, because they'll say to you, well, you don't want somebody even worse than I am in this role. Like, what if I, you know, get lose in my primary? And I feel like, but you're voting as if you were an extremist. So what is the difference? Like, at what point do you see 
that you are part of the problem. Well, the part that um, I find kind of astonishing is the that it is hurting their own constituents. You know, I did a Vermont yes. conversation a few weeks ago about what was happening with OBGYNs and compared, uh, was interviewing some of the OBGYN residents in Vermont. These are uh, young physicians who have a choice as to where they go and practice in yes. the country. Yes. The state of Idaho, which has the most, one of the most extreme bans on reproductive rights, by the end of this year will have lost nearly all of their high-risk pregnancy specialists, and 75% of the OBGYNs in Idaho who were polled have said that they are actively exploring leaving yeah. the state. Yeah. So you're and looking at and and maternity units. Yeah, maternity units. Um, two leading maternity units in their state have already shut down. So there is real and immediate harm, not yes. down the road, but like right now. Yes. Um, in these states and of course we're hearing similar things in texas and in other yes. states so you know these people you're working with them you're playing softball with them i mean how do they reckon how do they square the fact that you know their states are going to uh, yes they will be able to vote against abortion rights in their states and they will also lose many of their physicians. I can't, I really, I can't understand how they square it. I just can't. Um, and so I'm, I'm not gonna uh, attempt to, to make a, a guess as to how they do that. What I do know is that many of them are afraid of their own base. They saw some of these people were here on January 6th. They heard people screaming, hang Mike Pence. They saw, they saw what happened and they are afraid that they will be next. And now for me, if I think I'm gonna be next, then I'm gonna be out there making damn sure that nobody's gonna be next. And so it is so clear to me that they feel like Trumpism has enabled a, a, the next level of mob mentality, and they're afraid of it, and they don't know what to do about it. So they're trying to keep their heads down and hope it doesn't catch up with them. That's, that's the only thing that I can say. You've, I don't know. You've talked a lot about how your best preparation for the work you do now is that you were a middle school teacher. Yes, I still <laughs> believe that. So give me an example of where your background as a medical, middle school teacher has come into play and served you now in the U.S. Congress. Okay. I love this question. So I think about it a lot, actually. So when you're a middle school teacher, you have to be really good at thinking on your feet. You may go into your classroom, you have a game plan of what it is that you think you're going to get done, and then the conditions on the ground change. And so you have to be willing to jettison your plan and make a new plan in real time based on the needs of the, of the people in the room. So that certainly is helpful when I show up at a committee hearing and I have a line of questioning I think I'm going to follow, but then I hear the previous uh, testimony and the witnesses. And I realized actually there's this other thing 
that needs to be said. So you sort of scrap your notes and you start again. So that's one way. Another way is people in middle school are not really at their best, right? People are raging with hormones. They're trying to figure out who they are. I see a lot of, um, I see a lot of scared people and they're full of bluster and they're insecure. And so they try to make up for that insecurity um, in, in the way that they uh, show up with their, their bombast. So that helps me understand in those moments, like, oh, I've seen this before. I know, I know what that is. Um, and the other thing is you have to figure out when you're in any middle school class, how to get all the different people in the room to try to come together in some semblance of, a, of an organism, you know, moving forward. And so whether it's in caucus, whether it's in a committee hearing, whether it's in sort of a game plan, uh, you know, meeting for preparing for a, a committee hearing, I'm always trying to figure out who has something to say that hasn't had a chance to say it because they are more soft-spoken or who is able to see the big picture, but nobody's calling on them. And so I will often play the job of teacher of, oh, I think so-and-so has something to say here. Or uh, did you, you know, there's a side conversation happening over here. I think everybody needs to hear this, that I feel the, uh, I feel very confident in those skills. And so I employ them all the time. And I, I find it really useful because we all come to this work with different experience and with different backgrounds. And I certainly bring all of my uh, background with me. And so it's important to me to be hearing from the other voices and how they're coming to an issue. And I think that is also what makes for a good teacher. So um, yeah, I use them all the time. You also talked on the campaign trail about your experience in Vermont leading the Senate that working across the aisle was something you did every day and you had results uh, to show for that. You got things done uh, that required uh, agreement of people who perhaps don't agree on a lot of things. And you kind of build yourself as a peacemaker, a bridge builder. It seems you have now been thrust much more into the center of the culture wars, having to defend, among yeah. other things, LGBT rights uh, and things like that. Is that your, do you feel like there's been an evolution in the roles that you've had to play and how you've had to play them? I would say they're more public. I don't, I don't necessarily see them as an evolution because when you are um, a woman or a queer person in this country, you always have to have um, the ability to be more outspoken in moments when, when you feel like it, either you have to say something because you feel it in your body that something needs to be said or you feel like it will, will further the cause. Certainly, I'm still adjusting to things that I say in committee, then having an afterlife in video, and that people I don't know from across the country will reach out to me about something that I said or a line of questioning I had. And, um, you know, I, 
I don't want to become a one dimensional character based on something that I said in a committee because it's from a moment in time. It's from a particular hearing. And I don't know if there's any way to actually prevent that from happening, but I try to use all the tools in my toolbox. Sometimes I'm showing up uh, with spit and fire. Sometimes I'm showing up with, um, you know, kindness and deep curiosity in those committee hearings. And I really want to be able to play to all of my strengths and continue to cultivate the parts of me that are our weaknesses, that I can't control how the message that I'm putting out is received, but I can try to be very careful about not hitting the same note all the time. I do not want to become known as somebody who is an angry firebrand because sometimes I do need to be angry and I need to be holding a witness accountable. And other times that's not what's needed. And so this will be my challenge, I think. Are there any pieces of legislation, anything where you have been able to get some bipartisan backing for issues that you care about and for issues that involve Vermont? Yeah. So it is still really early in the process. And a lot of this stuff is going to come into play when we get back from uh, the August work period in the district as we try to, to hammer out the, the farm bill and um, the appropriations process. I do feel confident that issues that I care deeply about, like housing, like mental health, like supports to farmers, I'm going to be able to find partners because there's lots of congressmen and women who care about those regardless of party. And I think a lot of the work that we're doing right now is uh, prep to figure out what is possible when you've got a majority right now that says that they're not actually going to hold themselves to the deal that they made with Biden and they're going to come back to have deeper cuts. That's what we're hearing. And so I don't know what's possible, but my team is always looking at uh, amendment possibilities or you know, partnering with somebody across the aisle on some small aspect of you know, the mental health crisis. And so we're just going to continue to look. I, I didn't fully appreciate the extent to which many people in the majority right now don't actually want to govern. They would be perfectly happy if we did nothing. I mean, that's what this floor, uh, this farce on the floor the last week has shown. They don't care. Fine. We're not going to meet. We're not going to vote. We're not going to move stuff. Great. That's a win for them. So that's that's going to be our challenge is, are we really not going to be able to do anything until we're back in the majority? Or are there enough people on the other side who realize, as you said earlier, that their constituents will suffer if no work gets done? And it remains to be seen, I think. What has surprised you in these this first five months that you've been in Congress? One thing that I don't know if it, it has surprised me as much as it has helped me understand this uh, organization that I'm now a part of. I, I think of the Capitol complex as a giant ant farm 
Uh, there are just thousands and thousands of people moving around each day and they are often underground and they pop up and they congregate and then they go back underground. And, and so for me to figure out, okay, I am part of this, this entity that has in essence, a life of its own. And so it's important for me to take time to understand it, understand where, where the power is, where it flows and, and how to be effective, even when you're just one of hundreds of you know, people. I've been pleasantly surprised that people are just people, you know, and that everybody has their struggles and their, their points of pride. And it is important for me to always remember that when you come right down to it, they want, they want to do right by their constituents, but they don't always know what the right thing is. You have spoken openly of your mental health challenges in your life. And I, I think about the place that you work and yeah, toxic workplace certainly seems an apt description. How do you maintain your well-being, your mental health in yes. that environment, which is so highly conflictual? Yes, it's a great question. And I, first and foremost, I have an amazing team and I am very open with them about uh, when I am feeling low or when I need more time outside or when we're going to have a office-wide dance party for five minutes to do a reset. Um, I also bought an extra guitar so I could have one in Vermont and I have one in my office here where I can sit and, and sing and play for a few minutes in between meetings. I do try to get outside as much as I can, and and I try to stay out of the tunnels because I find that I I don't do well as a as a tunnel dweller. You know, going to uh, meetings uh, between buildings by traveling underground, I'd much rather be getting fresh air. I also start the day each morning on my I have a I have a little apartment close to the Capitol, and it has a back back deck and I sit out there every morning for a half hour with my coffee and just listen to the birds and and really focus on a power larger than myself. And I think if I didn't do those things, this would be an incredibly uh, difficult place to work. But I have structured my day so that I am walkable to the Capitol, that was really important to me to not spend a lot of time in, in a car. And I try to walk to as many meetings, even if they're off Capitol Hill. Um, you know, I, I figure within a mile and a half, you know, or two miles, I can do that and and just make sure I work that into my day. But so, keep checking in on me about that. What uh, What's your go-to song that you play on your guitar? Oh, gosh, I'm a huge huge fan of uh, Richard Schindel, uh, old folk folk singer, Brandy Carlisle, play a lot of Brandy Carlisle, Indigo Girls, um, some Martin Sexton. I I have uh, books and books of songs that I've uh, collected over the years that bring me joy. So I, I'll pull out my old songbooks. 
Um, let me uh, pivot here to what's going on in Vermont. Um, certainly dominating the news has been the issue of housing and homelessness. Several thousand Vermonters who've been living in emergency hotels are now losing that shelter. Um, what is your response to that and what can be done in your view? Yeah, the challenge is that we need to be doing both things at once, right? We need to be paying for temporary temporary shelter while also building more housing long-term. And this has been our struggle for years. And it's incredibly difficult for me, uh, not being in Vermont most of the time right now, to read the news and knowing that there are going to be individuals and families that will be leaving um the, the hotel and motel program. And, and we know there's a shortage of um, units. It's not as if, you know, we have plenty of vouchers that we can get through the federal government for, you know, housing, but the housing isn't available. And so I have always said that we have to have uh, a deep reckoning in each town and village and city about the need to build more housing. And I know that this has been very difficult that uh, on the one hand, people will say, yes, yes, we need more housing. We can't attract um, workers and their families. You know, certainly the school districts are, are suffering from not enough, you know, people moving in. But in order to do that, we have to be willing to build more. And it's more in our downtowns and it's, it's looking at building more accessory dwelling un units. But I think Vermonters uh, unwittingly, or maybe wittingly, I'm not sure, depending on the situation, have not wanted to do that. And we are, we're paying the cost of it. And I, you know, I was talking to a friend who's in the, the legislature about how difficult this issue has been for everyone that we know in Vermont that if we are spending more money on short term, we're not going to have that money for long term. But the other piece is that it's very difficult right now in Vermont for a working family to, to make ends meet. It's incredibly difficult because of housing costs, because of no child, not enough childcare, family medical leave, all those things that we need. And I think Vermont can be an incredibly vibrant place for young families. And, and part of the piece of that is people understanding that we need to build more housing and we can't be so um, happy to have housing built elsewhere, but not in our own towns and, and villages. Do you think that Act 250 has outlived its usefulness? It is often the tool that prevents den housing density from occurring. You know, I don't think it's it's outlived its purpose, but I do think that we have to deal with the factors on the ground now. And we should be very alarmed that there are thousands of people who are going unhoused right now. We're at, a, we're at a different moment. And it was one of the things that I know I worked on for years within the legislature, trying to find kind of a, a compromise, a, a sweet spot on, on Act 250 um, in, in the downtowns. So it's, it's a yes and, it's not an either or, but I do think that we have to understand that this problem is not going to solve itself. 
that we have to accept that it is a, a moral crisis that we're at right now, that people don't have a place, not just to live like and for their families, but essentially what we're saying is if we don't build more housing, that you're okay with people living in the woods and under bridges. And I'm not okay with that. So there's got to be a give and take. Finally, uh, you, you were often in your role as Senate President Pro Tem uh, here in Vermont, negotiating with Governor Scott. Governor Scott has just exceeded 40 vetoes for uh, his time as governor, which far outstrips, uh, it, it's a new record by far. Um, this year, we, it includes the child care bill, the budget. What is your response to that? And how does how do we get out of this problem of uh, legislatures, you know, working for five months to pass bills only yeah. to have them vetoed? You know, since the, the very first term that Governor Scott had, it has been clear to me that he and his team are really not interested most of the time in working collaboratively with the legislature, that it's often a model of the governor, his team swooping in at the last minute to oppose something, whereas they've been invited for testimony along the way. I can only speak from my experience. I have not been following closely this legislative session, but it was reminding me when I saw, I saw that news as well about all the vetoes, it was reminding me of the fact that so many of us worked so hard and so long to figure out the pension deal. And he was completely absent from that, did not participate. And in the end, even though he had a member of his team there essentially saying, like, it's really important for us to be involved in this, he was given a complete and total pass by um, voters on that. And that was a really big deal. And so we actually overrode the governor's veto unanimously, like that just doesn't happen, right? So something's going on here. And so I wish, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for the governor. I have a good relationship with him. I wish that he was more willing to work collaboratively. And I think um, he is able to often get away with not doing the work along the way and swooping in at the last minute. And, um, you know, it's certainly a winning political strategy for him. He, he hasn't paid the, a political cost for it, but I think it's exhausting for all the local House members and senators who are trying to do right by their towns and districts who clearly have a vote of confidence from their voters. And um, I think it's it, it, it's unfortunate that it has to come to that. And let me just finish by asking you, what gives you hope right now, this week? What I'm feeling hopeful about is that I read this incredible book last week about brain plasticity and how we actually can, can continue to develop uh, new pathways in our brain. And it inspired me to take up Spanish again. I, I spoke Spanish uh, when I lived in, in El Salvador for a while, but I'm so rusty. And right now I have some of my 
closest friends in the caucus are native Spanish speakers. And so in the last two weeks, I've taken up uh, a Spanish class and it is really making me more hopeful about a whole host of things that I can still learn and I want to learn. And it just puts me in a really great frame of mind. Okay, well, Representative Becca Ballon, on that note, hasta luego, and thank you uh, for speaking with us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much. Adios. <laughs>